The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Okay, um, okay. There was a talk a year ago here, uh, June 2010, by David McNally called Global Slump, the Mutating Crisis of Capitalism. So some of you may have heard that. I was in the East, uh, West Coast at that point. So that title is also related to his book. So I kind of inherited the title and the topic. I'm obviously not David McNally. At least, as far as I know, I'm not David McNally. Um, so I'm, I do highly recommend that book, and this is, talk is somewhat based on that book. Um, I am going to also be you know, building on that, though, and trying to update from a year ago. So there is a video at wearemany.org of his talk, which I do highly recommend. Um, so since the systemic crisis of neoliberal capitalism began in 2007, We've been experiencing a global slump, a period of the restructuring of capitalism to restore profitability and stability. So I'm going to be adding some more background as well as going over his main points to talk about how we can understand the current economy a year later and focusing particularly on what's sometimes called financialization of the economy. What does that mean exactly? So I've got four basic parts coming up to this talk. Um, a little basic Marxism about how capitalism works and how it doesn't work, some of the underlying theory, fairly briefly in general, to talk about this. Um, the idea of systemic crises and slumps and the need to periodically restructure capitalism, which is a big thesis of McNally's book. Um, the neoliberal period that led up to this recent crisis, and then the slump and what it looks like since then, how capitalism is restructuring so far. Um, I'm sure many of you have more knowledge about different areas of this. We'll have lots of room for questions in your comments because I, this is going to be obviously sketchy in different parts. If there's terminology that doesn't make sense or anything, also feel free to raise that later and I or somebody else can answer it. So I'm, I'm going to try to keep it at a level that people can understand without a lot of background though. Okay, so I'm starting out with really something basic here as a reminder for most people who study some Marxism. Um, the basic theory of how the working class is exploited based on the labor theory of value, that human labor creates all the value through the circuit of capital, which is what this little thing is called here. And we're going to need this to come back to that financial part. So the basic idea is um, that capital expresses a social relationship that exists in industrial capitalism and leads to self-expanding value. <laughs> Only labor creates surplus value beyond the cost of reproducing itself. So if we have a capitalist, somebody who possesses money, finance capital, they can use that to go out and purchase means of production, hire workers um, to use in production. They become productive capital when they're put to work, like worker using fabric to make a shirt. Whoop, take away, I'll come back to it later. I don't need that one right now, just need this one. Um, and they produce shirts, commodities to sell. Commodity capital, it's available to be sold later. Oh, thank you. Thank a lot. Okay, this, I guess I need to put more up here on this wall. Okay, and um, so finally what's produced, if the capitalist ends up selling those shirts, the money they get back should be the same amount of money they started with plus more. And that's the surplus value created in the labor process because workers are paid for what it costs to reproduce workers, feed them, clothe them, right? Not as much value as they produce. Otherwise, this wouldn't be capitalism. That's how it works, right? So beyond that, um, four basic fundamentals about uh, Marxist theory that I just want to quickly remind people on, and there are separate talks on a number of these also, or they have already happened. Uh, Marx's basic theory about capitalist crisis and the falling rate of profit, which is a whole major separate talk. 
Marx said all class-divided societies are unstable. They have internal contradictions. And in capitalist economies, he said there are a couple of recurring interrelated economic problems. They both occur because businesses have to compete to stay in business, and they have to keep trying to expand, or else another business will undercut them. So first problem, they have repeated crises, or what's called recessions in everyday life. Businesses have to invest to produce more products, be able to produce a, get a larger share of the market. You're going to be the ruler of the shirt market, and you're going to produce more and more shirts. And they end up overproducing compared to what they can actually sell. And that causes eventually a crisis where many businesses fail and go under. We get unemployment. You know, we all know that our side of that story. As the economy comes out of a recession and restores profitability for the remaining businesses, we see concentration and centralization of capital. Fewer, bigger, more powerful businesses and larger masses of money, financial or money capital, that can go back into this process again. Right. Um, second piece of the basic theory is the falling rate of profit, a long-term problem for businesses. Could you maybe put that down, sir, on the table? Rather than aiming it at me, I'm going to get nervous. So you might just put it. Thank you. You can leave it there if you want. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, sorry. Okay. Um, as they compete, businesses are driven to compete by. Um, Replacing workers with capital. They invest in more equipment, build more factories, get the latest equipment in stores, and develop the forces of production, this technology. So if you're the first business getting in with a faster sewing machine, obviously for you, you're producing more shirts per hour. You can um, sell at the same price and make more money. When more businesses add that technology, then the price is going to fall. And eventually, this undercuts the real source of profit. You've got less labor in each shirt, you're not getting as much surplus value per shirt because human labor is what creates a source of surplus value and the profit rate tends to fall. As a result, because of this drive to compete, development of technology, um, there's an increasing contradiction over time with the social relationships of production. And this is a tendency that ultimately pushes capitalism towards socialism. It doesn't work as well for profit making, it works better and better for providing for human needs. Um, without a transition to socialism, what we get is more class conflict. So again, a whole other top talk. <clears throat> so one, that's one fundamental piece that we're dealing with right now. Second piece, and increasingly important today, is the importance of money and credit in capitalism. You need a stable monetary system in any capitalist economy. Um, money obviously is part of this circuit of capital. We need it for exchange. And um, capitalism, in fact, is driven, as Marx said, by capital accumulation. And so that can be accumulated in the form of factories and equipment, and also in the form of money for future reinvestment. But we also need credit for the capital accumulation process. Businesses need a credit system to purchase inventory for their future sales and capital goods. And it makes it possible to use more resources than they have by borrowing money to purchase more. So it facilitates the growth of capital and technological progress. So lenders, banks, and other financial institutions take a risk based on a business's expected future sales and profits. So capitalism creates a banking system, actually, and a whole credit system to support this. So at this point, I'm going to add one more piece to the circuit of capital here. Very exciting. <laughs> oh. <laughs> High tech. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. All right. 
Okay, better than PowerPoint. <laughs> okay, the money is coming in here. Okay, so if we've got a lender, right, they're going to provide money that can be that can be loaned to this is dollar capitalist or business owner using this money. So they get back if they're supplying money. What you get back if, is an IOU. You get a kind of a loan document saying I owe you money back. So this IOU could be shares of stock in a company like Google. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> a bond. Google owes you ten thousand dollars plus interest, right? So this would be one of the ways you would be getting this IOU that they owe you money back plus interest or possibly dividends with stock. So this IOU, this is not part of the circuit of capital, obviously. It's outside that. This is not capital in itself. It's a way to get more money into that circuit because the only thing that counts as capital is this relationship, remember, that ends up producing surplus value. As Marxists, that's what we care about. So this thing gets this exciting title of fictitious capital, right? So just to make it a little more confusing, that's Marx and Marx used other terms as well, but it, but that's the term it's getting. So this is title to ownership. You know, if I if you bought this bond, you're going to get interest back for providing a service to this financial capitalist. Where are they getting the interest from? A share of that surplus value. So this is you're getting a share of what's produced for providing that money. Right? But, but it's kind of speculative. I mean, they, obviously this whole process has to work, which is another big issue, um, <laughs> which I'm not going to deal with today. Okay. Um, so the credit system is aiding in this capital accumulation process. Now, individual people can borrow money too, and this can also be a way to get money from a bank, like signing a lovely mortgage. In California, 400000 would not have bought you very much, and when we had the boom going on, uh, today would buy you a pretty good place, actually. Um, um, so if you sign a mortgage or if you borrow money on a credit card, you yourself are taking on a debt, right? For you, that's a debt, but this is somebody else has this piece of paper that says you owe them money, in some sense, plus interest, plus some return on what they loaned you. And so these securities usually have a due date on them. Stock's a little more complicated, but they usually have some kind of due date on them. And in the meantime, these can actually be bought and sold, traded as commodities, just to make things more complicated, like on a stock market, right? So if there's markets, you can buy and trade these things. So um, if these go up in price, if stock becomes more valuable or people will pay more for these Google bonds, does that mean the country's gotten any more value created? No, has nothing to do with that. It does not create real wealth. That's part of that, that fictitious idea, right? Okay, so, um, and they're also loans to governments, and this is what's sometimes called sovereign debt. This is the U.S. government has a whole lot of this, like 14 trillion. Right. <laughs> um, so this is U.S. government owes $10,000 plus interest, and these also can be traded on. Okay. So the credit system, in fact, reinforces crises, and this is the theory, I'm sure some of you know, of Hyman Minsky, which also is based on Marx. Um, capitalist society comes to depend more and more on all these credit relationships, and we'll get back to a little few more of the current ones. In boom periods, firms borrow extensively because they do have really optimistic expectations about selling more and more. They borrow more and more money. They owe more and more money. Get back to Google's bond here. Okay, they owe more and more money. This helps create that overproduction. So this is a part of helping accelerate the economy. And then, of course, these things are going to lose value when we get to a crisis. 
So that helps the economy strengthen and recover. So in this process, if we have companies going under, hopefully not Google, because I have friends who work there. <laughs> um, but if some of these companies go under, again, the bonds or the stock may lose value. Um, and the remaining capital, again, is ending up in fewer hands, more integrated into this credit system as we get to a bigger capitalist economy. So the credit system and fictitious capital also add more instability through fraud, things like uh, Bernard Madoff and Ponzi schemes. Uh -huh. Yeah, this is all the fun things of capitalism. Um, and asset bubbles, like stock market bubbles, housing bubbles. Um, the famous beginning one that's well known for early capitalism is tulip bulbs in 1637, the railroad stocks in the US in the 1840s, and the dot-coms in the 1990s. Okay, where everybody's bidding more and more for some asset and bidding up the price based on being able to borrow and get credit to buy more and more of these kinds of things, or tulip bulbs, which are physical things. Okay, so that's two fundamental Marxist points about how capitalism works. Number three, kind of basic, capitalism is an expanding and increasingly international system. It's a dynamic mode of production because of those underlying competition. So Marx said in the Communist Manifesto, the need of a constantly expanding market for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the whole surface of the globe. It compels all nations on pain of extinction to adopt the bourgeois mode of production. It creates a world after its own image. So this helps maintain the profit rate in dominant capitalist countries. And with this unending expansion and trade, capitalism also accelerates international use of money. We'll return to this as some of the current issues. So as a result, capitalism seeks a stable international monetary system. It's good to have one measurement of value that works across many different countries. It's hard, all systems require some adjustment, um, the gold standard was a system in the late 1870s to World War I, but even that required a specific adjustments and based on specific social and political factors. Okay, and finally, um, our fourth, the fourth point is about how the state governments fit into capitalism. They're very necessary for capitalism. There's a nice discussion of this in Chris Harmon's Zombie Capitalism, which is also a lot of people have read here. Yeah. Um, productive capital, like a factory or a store, is fixed in place. So um, industrial capitalists want to protect that. They need a government or a state to help protect that and protect their conditions of exploitation and selling their products. So national states and their nationally based capitals, like factories, like Starbucks for each little store, um, have grown up together and created an interdependent system. And the state is an agent of their capital accumulation in their country and also externally. Um, there is an, there's also another need for credit in capitalism, which is that the state itself needs to create deficits at times, to fight wars, to expand. And so it creates this government or sovereign debt at times. So that means this, the state is actually dependent on borrowing from financial institutions. Right? And this creates another thing for those financial institutions to trade and sell and make money off of, too. So um, the other issue in terms of the state is as capitalism keeps expanding, you can get increasingly contradictory relationships between separate capitals and the state. Those fixed productive capital, like a store or a coal mine, needs that protection from its state, maybe keeping out in trade imports, might want a lot of rules to protect it. Larger national capitals, like um, multinationals that we've seen, manufacturing moving abroad, 
um, they get their profit and their power much more internationally, and they don't want states with a lot of power over them. So they do still need the power of, if you're in the United States, we have a great military, we have political and other kinds of power that can help protect them, but they don't want to have a lot of rules on them. So there can be an area of conflict between different forms of capital. Um, so we get an in changing international balance of political dominance, which again we'll come back to in, towards the end. So that's the basics that I want to use for Marxist theory, and then to talk about this new issue and the current issue, which is systemic crises and slumps. This is a major part of McNally's contribution in Global Slump. It's the latest version of an important ongoing debate among Marxists, particularly since World War II. It's obviously really important to discuss now since we saw the economy collapse starting 2007 to 2008. Um, so the basic idea is there are overall long periods of expansion in countries where capitalism is dominant, but they're punctuated by shorter crises or recessions. So we had a recession in 1990 to 91. We had it in 2001. Those were not major turning points. Um, but, and so, but these, we do have these major turning points at times happening. Um, in a regular crisis, like 1990 to 91, some businesses go under, some banks don't get repaid, they might go broke or lose money, but we expect most of the major capitals in that society will emerge renewed and strengthened and most financial institutions should stay healthy. So this is because of overinvestment, the crisis helps create the restoration of the economy. In this systemic crisis, capitalism has been expanding and generated based on more and more lending and more and more debt to back up all of that, to have more and more expansion of capitalism. And when the crisis hits, we have many businesses going under at once, and they're trying to pay back their debts. This is sometimes called deleveraging, being less in debt, and nobody's borrowing. People just owe money, and they're frantically trying to collect from whoever owes them, which puts more pressure throughout the economy. And there's no stimulus for quite a long time to start rebuilding again and start this process going. And the economy can be stuck for a long period of time. Um, those asset bubbles, those can be a big factor in creating this. That certainly has been this most recent time, obviously. Um, so Pavel Maksakovsky, in a book that Haymarket has called The Capitalist Cycle from uh, 1928, Russian economist, talked about this being linked to the ongoing development of technology, of the forces of production, hitting really major changes in the economy. So if, the, if now this kind of systemic crisis could be the trigger for socialist revolution, but so far it hasn't in the United States. Therefore, we get a really difficult period of restructuring of global capitalism, and that's what McNally's calling a slump here. A period of persistent recessionary pressures and real systemic built-in difficulties keeping the economy from getting back to profitability and growth. So McNally said, and also Joel Geyer actually in the ISR has written some things in the, with the same viewpoint, um, we had, in U.S. history, four systemic crises. Um, 1873 to 1896, when a uh, big crisis throughout the U.S., when prices were falling. The Great Depression, 1929 to 39. Um, a world slump from 1973 to 82, leading into neoliberalism, and the current slump, starting in 2007. So, um, let's see. I'm at 20? Okay, am I supposed to be at 20? No, I'll say, okay. <laughs> okay, um, 
So um, Joel Geyer, Doug Henwood of Left Business Observer. There's also a school of Marxists called the Social Structures of Accumulation People, David Cox, who follow the same framework. There is an opposing viewpoint in Marxism that's worth knowing about. Um, the Monthly Review School particularly sees a long downturn or an ongoing slump or stagnation ever since at least the 1970s. Um, so, uh, Baran and Sweezy of Monthly Reviewed, John Bellamy Foster, they say capitalism switched to a non-competitive monopoly stage starting back in the 1950s where there was no more falling rate of profit. The monopolies had so much power that wasn't going to happen anymore. And the only problem is selling things. So the economy's just stuck. Um, Robert Brenner, who's pretty well known, um, partially agrees with this, um, but he does include the falling rate of profit as an issue. Um, Chris Harmon of Zombie Capitalism used to use that theory. He's kind of modulated it in this book. Um, the problem with this viewpoint is, um, to give you a quote from Paul, I'm throwing a lot of names here that may be of interest to people, some people will know, but uh, Paul Maddock, I think is an excellent writer, um, he's on Marxist.org, in 1970 wrote, Moran and Sweezy denied that capitalism generated crises so profound, so bad, that capital could resolve them only through unrelenting attacks on the working class and thereby abandoned all hope of proletarian revolution. That's, again, pretty significant, right? If capitalism can keep skating and keep us kind of struggling along on the bottom without ups or downs, the idea is we have less stimulus through the increasing immiseration idea for workers to be really fed up and want to overthrow the system. So there's really important political implications of this theory. Um, I think, as I said, I agree with the, with the theory in here that neoliberalism did restore profitability. Um, and it, it's in terms of why there's not one clear answer in this, I'll just add that data is collected by bourgeois economists for their purposes. They don't measure surplus value or profit the way we do. So there are differences among Marxists trying to adapt the data. So. Okay, so neoliberalism. Um, 1973 um, to 82, this world slump. Um, there's the, the so-called golden age, a real growth period of capitalism after World War II, but it led to some basic problems for dominant capital in countries like the United States and Europe. And these are some of the same problems they're still fighting today. They found a solution through neoliberalism. Rising domestic costs were going up. At that point, unions, working class, and oppressed people were really, had been really well organized, were fighting back. The state was partly spending money on things like Medicare, <laughs> uh, social services for people, job creation, because of that upsurge of fighting. The profit rate was falling. Globalization was happening, meaning that international competition was arising. Um, at this point, uh, from Western Europe and Japan, who had finally rebuilt after World War II, production was moving more overseas, and um, third world countries were challenging Western imperialism and U.S. hegemony. So it's a lot of challenges to the sources of profit. The Bretton Woods Agreement ended. The international currency system based around the dollar wasn't accurate because of the way the world balance of power was changing, um, leading to some inflation. And finally, because of this, the masses of productive capital, like manufacturers in the US, for example, had a couple of basic choices. Rationalize production, get those costs down, get the unions out, or move overseas. That's their choices. And financial capital, on the other hand, had the bargaining power, we've got the money to lend, and they become more dominant. 
So this is very sketchy. There's a lot more on neoliberalism around. And again, McNally has a lot more description on this also, what happened. So the ruling class solution, neoliberalism, also called the Washington Consensus, was designed to restore the profit rate, weaken working class independence, get us all to believe the ideology of capitalism. This is the way it has to be. Restore the product power of big capital over the states, cut state costs, and restructure imperialist balance of power under the dominance of the United States. They had some ideologies that they used to back this up. They didn't really follow. People like Milton Friedman, Friedrich Hayek, the efficient markets theory was part of this. Um, basically calling for small government for the working class. All right, No unions, minimum wage, deregulate and privatize everything. In terms of institutions, what the strategies they used to restore profitability, corporations got restructured, focused on short-term profits. As we all know, the cutthroat corporate competition led to what's called the employer's offensive, the attacks on workers, um, tax on unions. We had in businesses, hostile takeovers, leveraged buyouts, restructuring of businesses, lean production, lots and lots of pressure and speed ups, union busting, more use of temporary and part-time and contract workers, all the things we've seen happening in the last 30 years. The state focusing on servicing, serving business, um, tax cuts, as we know, for the rich, cut social spending, deregulation of business and finance, and internationally, free trade agreements, international lending policies that created debt traps for many developing countries, and military and ideology to back up this whole policy. Again, and um, again, lots more to be said, but I'll leave all that out. And um, this was pretty much successful. Global, profit, global capitalist profitability was restored. Wealth flowing in from the south to the north. The profit rate um, rose strongly in the dominant countries. From 1982 to 97, um, US non-financial corporations doubled their profit rate. Um, and new centers of global accumulation continued to grow in China, India, and other places. The U.S. is probably is a major importer of world products, and we were all spending money through going in debt to buy all those products. There's one more piece of this, though, which we have to focus on, and this is related to the meltdown that we finally experienced, and that's this idea of financialization. Am I talking too fast? Good, because I've trying to beat my clock here. Okay. <laughs> okay. So financialization, the general idea is the increasing importance of money, finance capital and money capital in capitalist economies. Credit and lending functions become increasingly necessary as capitalism expands. Some people also use it to mean that profit making is occurring more and more through finance rather than trade and commodity speculation. And that's a little more debatable. Um, it does reflect a rise in speculation and increasing importance of financial markets and institutions to the whole system. So um, in response to the falling profit rates that were hitting in the 70s, um, corporations started looking to get higher returns. Um, they had to take on new risks to expand internationally with things like currency values, interest rates. Banks wanted to get higher profit rates. So they fought and got to be deregulated by the state. And they began to manage investment funds, plan those corporate takeovers, trade in securities, currencies, and commodities, and creating what's sometimes called the shadow banking system, globally integrated system, <laughs> starting with Wall Street securities firms, the biggest banks, and investment banks. 
Throughout this time, also, all the rising income inequality we experienced as our jobs were getting cut, our wages were cut, deregulation and the falling rate of profit together created large pools of financial capital, this money, being held by the big institutional investors. And they were turning to the Wall Street banks like Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, to say, help us make more money. So who had these big pools of money? Hedge funds, private equity funds, um, pension funds and life insurance companies too. And also, looking for a higher profit rate at this point, things like college endowments, cities, counties, foundations, they all said, we want to make a higher return. So financial capital took a really dominant role directing how corporations invested and restructured. It became a lot more po powerful. These institutional investor investors I just listed, today they own 40% of corporate stock. Yeah, it's pretty centralized. So it's a lot of power with very big masses of money. I'll add for folks who don't know what a hedge fund is, it's a big pool of money for people who are like millionaires, very wealthy, and they get to invest it. There's no, they don't have to be do anything safe with it because they're considered so rich, they know what they're doing and we don't have to regulate them. They're very smart. So it's true. Um, so they're all looking for, and profit rate had fallen, interest rates were generally low, they're looking for higher rates of return. And we got a neoliberal ideology said, this is great, new expanding markets for financial products and services. And the Federal Reserve backed this whole thing up, stimulating the economy. So we got increasing symbiosis or interties of the productive sector and this expanding financial sector. And we can see that because the financial sector has provided an increasing share of GDP, tax revenues, uh, stock market capitalization since the 70s, almost a double share of all corporate profits going to financial institutions from 79 to 2002. So um, let's see, I'm skip that piece. Oh God, okay. <laughs> all right. Um, there's an important distinction for Marxists. Profit making isn't necessarily capital accumulation. So we, I pointed out earlier, this is capital accumulation is through this circuit of capital, right? The only source of capital is this part in production. So the amount of this that's going into speculation um, um, is, is um, good, bubbles based on fictitious capital, like bidding up the prices of stocks and bonds. And those bubbles eventually will burst. And the capitalism will be pushed back to where it really gets more value from, which is production, exploiting workers. So what happened? The housing bubble. Okay. Um, okay, there's Wendy, my other poster here. And I'll mark her too. Okay, so how many people think you already pretty much know what happened with the housing bubble and what it all means? Okay, so maybe I don't need, I don't need to do this. I don't know. Well, okay, I'll do it kind of quickly. Okay. Okay, what? Well, it's the housing bubble in the financial sector, how it created a, a big speculation, derivatives, CDOs, all that stuff. Okay, yeah, that's what I did, that's what I did this thing for. Okay. So um, we had a series of speculative bubbles and crises since the 80s and 90s, things like um, the Orange County went bankrupt in 1994, East Asian crisis of 97, long-term capital management, a big hedge fund went broke in 98, stock market crash after Enron, and a lot of fraud, all these fun things. But the big one has been, for us oh, since 2002, the housing market and real estate bubble. So if we're looking at what happened here, um, we had the one really important term that we have to mention for all this time, which is subprime mortgages. So what's a subprime mortgage? 
risky. Okay, high so rate, high rate of uh, interest. Okay, interest rate starts low often and goes up, right? So some of them they would go up after you've had the mortgage for a few years. You may not have to make any down payment or very little down payment. They don't check people's credit as well. Sometimes they didn't check at all. Liars loans, ninja loans, no income, no job or assets. Uh, okay. And often predatory lending given out to people who are expected to default so that they could seize the property, or sometimes given to people who didn't need this kind of special loan with a higher interest rate letter, who would, would, later would have qualified for a prime loan. Well, again, function, focus particularly on people of color in this predatory lending. Okay, so this is how people are getting their mortgages. This is an explosion. The mortgage lenders were pressured. Here's my little demonstration. Here's the homeowners sending, normally, here's um, them um, making payments on their houses. These are their mortgages, little IOUs they sign, held by mortgage lenders like Countrywide or the Bank of America, which are actually now one. Uh, okay. Um, so they would have these mortgages paid to people, but Wall Street and big investors stepped in. Again, they were looking for ways to make a higher rate of return. And they said, this is a really reliable market. You know, the stock market has crashed, right? We don't know where we can make more money right now, but people always pay on, pay on their mortgages pretty well. And um, the price of houses has never fallen. Well, not since the Great Depression. So we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> So they started doing, they started, um, and um, over half of people actually, oops, skip that, comes later. Okay. Um, okay. So um, Wall Street started a process called securitization and creating something called derivatives. They are taking some kind of security, like, and it could be also a bond as well as a mortgage, and they're going to uh, turn this into a tradable asset in a pool. So what they did was create pools of thousands of mortgages. Let's say 4,000 mortgages all pooled together. So they got all these mortgage documents signed by people. You signed it, you're going to pay for 30 years. They give you a new address to mail in your payment. That's all you would know about this. Okay, so the big banks... Um, Wall Street firms like Bear Stearns bought up the mortgages, pooled them together, and sold off sections or slices. So you, if you happen to be a wealthy person, an investor, you can buy a share out of all 4,000 mortgages. And you are going to get income when these people make their payments, right? You as the investor, this is how you are going to make money. Right. And now Wall Street, of course, they're getting something out of this. They get a fee, of course, <laughs> for setting up this thing. So this pool exists on its own. The mortgage lenders are out of the picture. They don't have those mortgages anymore. Right? So this is the idea of securitization or creating a derivative, because if you own this as a security of kind of a bond, you own this thing that's based on something else that's valuable, people making their mortgage payments. Um, in fact, investors wanted riskier ones at times because they paid higher returns for taking on the risk, but they all thought this thing is not that dangerous at all. It's pretty safe, the whole process. Right. Um, as demand for securities rose, so investors were looking for more and more mortgages, so that's why they ended up expanding to those subprime mortgages, looking for more and more people, because Wall Street's making money off this. These investors, including banks in France and Scotland and, of course, Iceland, all these places. Investors are all making money up selling these things to people. 
And so they're looking for more and more. So they went back to the mortgage lenders and said, get us more mortgages. And so that's when we started, get, we got flawed by the mortgage brokers as well, faking people's documents. Uh, we had the lending ag rating agencies that rated the safety of these securities lying and saying they were safer than they were. And then just to make it a little more complex, I'll just basically mention this. If you have one pool of mortgages, and here's another pool, and here's another pool of mortgages, you can combine all of these and get a share out of all three. And that's where you get to the CDOs. You've got a derivative based on a derivative based on somebody's payment on their house. <laughs> so then, at this point, in actually, in either case, either the one pool or the many pools, you don't know as an investor where those mortgages are, where the houses are, you don't know details anyway. You're just taking this whole thing on faith. Um, and I guess the last piece we have to add, where's my note about this piece? Uh, Wall Street began selling a specific kind of insurance. In case you bought this bond and you're afraid it's gonna go bad. Credit default swaps. Uh, this, all the terminology we've had to learn since 2007, right? So this is a kind of insurance on your bond and you can buy this. Right? And so just in this very small chance it goes bad, you're safe, or any of these other complex kinds of bonds you're gonna buy, securities or derivatives. Um, but then in another way, they could create pools of these things. Mm -hmm. right? And so that's a synthetic CDO, so that's one term for those. And you can bet either way. You can bet that people will make their mortgage payments or they won't make their mortgage payments. <laughs> and this is real famous activity of Goldman Sachs with John Paulson. Yes, very entertaining. They just got fined 154 million, probably not nearly enough for this. They were betting on both sides of the deal, basically. So um, all of these new exotic forms of financial investment obviously are an explosion of fictitious capital. This is not more production, right? It's mostly useless financial speculation. It doesn't help get more products be created. It just earns fees for Wall Street. But if everybody's bidding up, they're all making money in the short term. Um, it, it does um, possibly help spreading around the risk of ex international expansion by firms. If they're getting some kind of risk expansion through credit default swaps on something riskier, that's possible. And it did raise money for mortgages, which was part of the original idea. But as we saw, how we saw that got turned around. Um, so this whole thing was based on massive bank leverage, meaning that the Wall Street banks were borrowing and and loaning based on loaning much much more than they borrowed, up to 30 times as much as they were holding at the peak of this, like uh, firms like Morgan Stanley and Bear Stearns. They borrowed from each other, all of these different Wall Street banks, and from the big investors, so all so they could loan more and more, all ultimately based on the US housing market. Um, and the assumption was that these banks were so large and they served so many financial functions, they were too big to fail. <laughs> so this whole bubble was founded on working people going deeper and deeper into debt because of 30 years of rising income inequality. The top 1% share of income from 82 to 2006 went from about 13% to 21%. The bottom 80% of us went from 48 to 39% of all the income in the US. So um, uh, we got the largest increase in household debt as a percent of our income in history from 2001 to 2007. It went from 60% of income in the 60s and 70s 90% of our income, we all owed back by 90, 2000. 
the peak was 130% in 2007. Right, so we owed more than one year's total income of everybody in the United States. So, okay, I'm at 40, okay, I'm sorry. I'm gonna have to go a little, oh, this is nothing to do, I have to go over a little bit. So this created this systemic risk, a risk to the entire financial system with all these intertwined finances and created a systemic crisis of the economy. Um, began hints into summer 2007 and the spring 2008, the government helped out Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Mm. JP Morgan took over Bear Stearns, cost 30 billion. September 2008, the Fed rescued AIG insurance for 180 billion. They let Lehman Brothers go under, and that was it. Panic, total shutdown of the global financial system. There was a credit freeze that stopped business activity for about three weeks. No loans to small business, no nothing. Banks worldwide were bankrupt. This is what they had in their assets. They had all these derivatives in their books as valuable items. Um, bubbles of financial, fictitious capital burst, and there was a massive loss of wealth. The Dow Jones fell by 55% from peak to low. It lost 11 trillion. We lost 8 trillion in housing wealth. And it was officially the longest recession since the Great Depression. World GDP fell 2% in 2009, first time since the Great Depression. And as you all know, unemployment rose massively for all of us, and it wasn't even, it wasn't, in many ways, it artfully counted. Um, the financial institutions were growing broke, and as we started out by saying, they're necessary for capitalism. So, <laughs> ending up here, the swamp and capitalist restructuring. Um, since that time period, as you know, the, um, um, we have had, we had those huge bailouts of the financial institutions. We've had a so-called recovery in the last couple of years, GDP outputs going up slowly. Um, and um, let's see, financial institutions have stalled the process of recovery partly with those bailouts. Businesses aren't all going bankrupt and the banks, because they got bailed out, are still hanging on to toxic debt. They still have people owing them money that is not gonna be repaid. And in fact, they're not lending money out, but they're still speculating. Corporations are back to making excellent profits again, but there's still global overcapacity among all these businesses worldwide. I mean, incomes are so low globally, again, people are not buying and there's no spending to purchase items. There's no housing recovery in sight. Record foreclosures last year of 2.9 million. Two million more expected in the next couple of years. So the underlying problem what's sustaining capitalism is that we as consumers on our spending side are broke. Um, we're, our household net worth has dropped. We've got high unemployment. Um, we're slowly trying to reduce our debt, either losing our houses through foreclosure or just paying off all that money we borrowed, and there's no way it's going to increase. So um, neoliberal capitalism has pushed us down in terms of living standards, in terms of wages, pushed us completely into debt. There's nowhere to go for us. Um, they are still restructuring capitalist production globally, looking for profits around the world, and immensely complex global chains of supply and demand as production is organized. Multinationals and financial capital move out of less profitable sectors and move elsewhere. And part of this, therefore, they're accepting the U.S. losing its dominance in production and manufacturing. Profit is rationalized internationally for these corporations. In a sense, though, this is a contradictory role for U.S. capital. They're seeking immediate profits, either through all kinds of speculation, fictitious capital lending, or moving internationally for production where there's cheaper labor, cheaper land, no regulations. 
um, but they're undercutting their basis in production in the U.S., national production and surplus value to the extent doing all this lending and fictitious capital <laughs> because, again, this is where um, real value comes from. So the, all the speculative parts do not help. M companies buying each other up and becoming bigger does not create more wealth for them, ultimately more value. Um, it does make sense for capitalism. Um, ultimately, the falling rate of profit in the advanced capitalist countries means, in some sense, U.S. economic dominance is meant to decrease. Now, the U.S. has the large, by far the largest military in the world. Um, it's dominant, but in that sense, but we can see the Washington Consensus weakening when the G8 became the G20 in terms of countries trying to plan the recovery from this world system. Um, these new growth centers for capital accumulation are occurring places like China. U.S. financial institutions are still dominating this process, um, backed up by the U.S. government. Um, but China is also facing, helping create global overcapacity. And so this is an ongoing issue that we'll still face with smaller crises until these faster growing countries like China can produce and export themselves with more skilled labor, pay higher wages, and create their own so-called middle class, workers who can afford to purchase more. Um, the other obviously fact of all of this is increasing class conflict and more of our unity as a global working class as well more similarly oppressed. Uh, in terms of the role of the state in this process, we know the governments um, bailed out the financial and banking institutions, and this is what most, most pissed off people in the United States, was those bailouts and then bonuses to the CEOs who caused this problem. Okay. <laughs> um, so the U.S. ruling class is trying to continue its global dominance as a neoliberal basis, an alliance of the biggest capitals and financial capital. Um, and so the, finally, the message to the states, as we all know, is austerity. So austerity, so begin, and that's the example we see today in Greece, also in the United States. Um, there's a blog that David McNally has online, and he says on that, capitalist primary concern is not and has never been with the economy, but with profits and the stability of the system. So it's fine to give us such low living conditions and such bad system that we can barely survive ourselves, and actually are undercutting the health of the economy itself, day-to-day -day production as long as they're making profits somewhere in the system. Um, and I'll just briefly mention the last two problems, that will be it. Um, sovereign debt problem, um, countries um, are, have been linked, um, countries need a method of international financial capital to trade. Um, Greece is a big example of the sovereign debt crisis, as I'm sure most of you know, um, from the debt trap created by international lenders. The more they push down wages and conditions there, it makes it worse. And now um, the interest payments in 2011, before the latest agreement on austerity, were going to take 30% of all government revenue. It's not sustainable. It won't work, even to restore capitalism. I mean, Paul Krugman said you might as well give up and let them, you know, get them out of the euro, let them devalue, let them default on their debt, because this will not work. And obviously the people in the streets of Greece are saying this is not okay as well. Um, let's see. Um, and I'll add that they owe their debt to French and German banks. The debt is insured by a lot of American financial institutions. They're still gambling. Um, and finally, instability in trade and the monetary system. Um, we, we have the great balance of payments deficits of the United States that have been going on. The international currency has been shaken up in this process. Um, the value of the dollar has been slowly weakening since the 1990s overall, except for efforts to keep it pumped up. 
Um, and so, and this will be an issue that will return eventually as capital is moving globally. So the financial institutions have the last word right now on what's happening in capitalism. With so much debt, large pools of financial capital available, the corporations are sitting on 1.6 billion of cash that they, trillion, trillion, thank you, trillion of cash that they're refusing to look, they're not investing, they're not loaning out at this point. They're just holding on to it because they don't see a way to make a profit. So they've got the bargaining power over which corporations get money, where the money goes, and money going to states. Um, the neoliberal method of stimulating the economy has reached an end in terms of consumer spending, half of it. They can keep trying to push down our living conditions. There's no more spending by us to happen to push things going. So the future of global capitalism really is outside the dominant capitalist countries. Um, and the question will be resistance by people in countries like Greece, people in the U.S. who are being impoverished, and hopefully the working class of these countries that are becoming more fully capitalist, like China and India. Um, and I guess I will stop with that. Thank you. Thank you. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.